We'll hear argument next this morning in case 10-6, Global Tech Appliances versus SEBSA. Mr. Dunnigan. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The standard for the state of mind element for a claim for inducing patent infringement should be, did the accused inducer have a purpose to induce a third party to engage in acts that the accused inducer knew infringed the patent? That's what I'll call the purposeful culpable test. The Federal Circuit applied a standard of whether Pentalpha was deliberately indifferent to a known risk that a patent may exist. The Federal Circuit's deliberate indifference test was not a willful blindness (coughs) test. Willful blindness would have required both an awareness of a high probability that a patent would exist and a deliberate effort to avoid learning the truth. That's okay as far as you're concerned. You you consider that comes within your your first test? Um, Your Honor, deliberate indifference would not fall. Oh, would not, but willful blindness would. No, Your Honor, willful blindness would not fall within our purposeful culpable test. So even willful blindness wouldn't wouldn't be enough? Willful blindness is not a purpose, Your Honor. You said that the particular patent, the defendant would have to know that uh, the device infringed the particular patent, I think that would be a standard that was, would be impossible to meet. We'd have to know is it was patent number, whatever it was, 312? Well, you wouldn't have to know the patent number, Your Honor, but what you would have to know is that your, the product, which you are inducing a third party to make use or sell, would be within the scope of, a, of the claims of a particular patent. If you don't know that, then you're literally — But you can keep yourself ignorant of it. I mean, for example, you uh, pointed out that the, that the uh, device that was copied was purchased in Hong Kong, so it didn't have any marking. But the same uh, Pentalpa could have bought the, the device in uh, Montgomery Ward — Look to see if it had a patent marking. Didn't do that. It didn't do that, Your Honor. What it did was better. It hired a United States patent attorney to conduct a search to see if there was any patent which was infringed. But didn't tell that patent attorney that they had reverse-engineered a particular product. If the attorney had been told this device copied the SEB fryer, isn't it 99, 144,100% sure that the attorney then would have found this patent? We don't know, Your Honor. We don't know why the patent search failed. It could have failed for a number but, of reasons. I didn't ask you about this patent search. I said, if they had told the patent attorney, we have copied a particular fryer, it's SEB's fryer. Now find out if it infringed any patent. Do you think an attorney would not have found the SEB patent? It's possible that he wouldn't have. Maybe it's more probable that he would have. There's just no evidence on that in the record, Your Honor. Well, why, you, why wouldn't you tell him if you're, if you're honestly interested in finding out whether there's a patent that you're infringing? Why wouldn't you tell him? The reason we're concerned is that we have reverse-engineered this from somebody else's product. Just check to see if SEB has a patent on any of this stuff that was reverse-engineered. That's what I would have done. Your Honor, maybe that's what you have done. That's, maybe that's what I would have done. But there's no — but the standard of that business, what they had done in the past, was to give their design drawings to the patent attorney and say, objectively, check these design drawings. Their practice was not to notify the attorney. Was their practice to reverse engineer from other people's products? Uh, yes. I mean, I can understand when you have a new product of your own, of course, you just give it to an attorney. Yes. But where you have reverse engineered, not to tell them that it was reverse engineered, seems to me — really trying to keep yourself in the dark. Uh, you, wh- what you want to get from the attorney is a piece of paper that, that he can show to Montgomery Ward that, uh, yeah, this product is not, and as it turns out, Montgomery Ward did accept it and, and got hit with, with liability for infringing a patent. I, I, I find that really incredible. 
that in, in an honest attempt to find whether, whether there was any patent infringement going on, you wouldn't even tell the patent attorney that you re- reverse-engineered somebody else's product. Your Honor, I, looking back at this in hindsight, there's, there's no question that if they had to do it again, they would have taken the additional step. No, but, they wouldn't. No. Well, from an objective perspective, Your Honor, if you're giving the design to the, to the attorney and you're saying do a complete search, it seems to me that that's the antithesis of being willful blind because you're hiring a specialist to go out and look for the answer for you. Now, the gold standard was not met, but the gold standard would rarely be met in any of these but your cases. position is that even willful blindness isn't enough. You have to have actual knowledge that the, the item is patented, right? That is correct, Your Honor. So if the attorney had called up your client and said, I have an answer for you, and the client said, well, you know what, on second thought, I really don't want to know, because if I, if I have actual knowledge, uh, that may put me in, in a box. So forget about it. And there's no liability. Well, I would disagree in that situation because most probably the knowledge of the attorney in that situation, because he's been hired by the client, would be imputed to the client. So I could see a different result in the hypothetical that you posited. Why would we, wouldn't the rule that you're setting forth, willful blindness, uh, not being a part of it, mean that nobody would ever get a patent search? Because what would be the inducement to do that? Well, Your Honor, right now, under, under the Seagate case in the Federal Circuit, there is no inducement to go get a patent search. Under the Seagate decision, if a party — No, but you're not presumed to copy other people's items, which is the difference. Is there — let me just ask you something. Assuming we were to find a willful blindness test to actual knowledge, the, the facts of your case, the fact that they did not give — um, the name of the uh, product that they copied to their patent attorney, is that just, as a matter of law, willful blindness? No, Your Honor, I don't think that's willful blindness as a matter of law. Willful blindness under the, stan- under the Santos standard has two distinct elements. One would be that there's a high probability that there would have been a patent on that particular product. Do patents are pa- can you do a patent search on the basis of the n- name of the holder? Yes, you can, Your Honor. And the product that they copied, did it have the name of the holder of the patent? Yes, it did, Your Honor. So what is the likelihood that if they had actually given the attorney the name of the product, that he would not have found the patent? We don't know for sure, but the probability would be greater than 50 percent, Your Honor. I think it would be probably 90 percent, assuming because there's always errors in searches. But didn't we take this case to determine whether or not deliberate indifference is the standard? I mean, willful blindness, uh, which I don't think an opinion for this Court has ever sustained. Santos was a a judgment. uh, It was not a majority opinion. Uh, That's just a subset of knowledge. If we leave that out, isn't the dichotomy that you present to us the difference between deliberate indifference and knowledge? Or purpose or purposeful culpable expression that the Gox the Grokster stand. Yes. The well I, I think to answer the question presented in the cert petition, you really need to determine what the standard is. Now, I think we can also decide that it should not be will or we can agree that it should not be a deliberate indifference to a known risk that a patent exists, because that would be met in virtually every situation where there was not actual knowledge of a patent. When I look at the language of the statute I see no scienter requirement whatsoever. Whoever actively induces infringement of a patent. Infringement is strict liability. So if you actively induce somebody to engage in conduct constituting infringement, you're, you're liable as an inducer. Let me explain to you why, why the language of the statute should not support the interpretation which Your Honor just gave. Let's begin with the word induces. Induces connotes some degree of intent, arguably. Mr. Cruz agrees with that at page 20 of his brief. If you put the word actively in front of the word induces, then you have a heightened intent standard. You have intent, but intent to do what? Exactly, Your Honor. That brings you to the word infringement in the statute. Now, I think it's critical that B uses the word infringement. It does not go back to A and say anyone who actively induces the 
making, using, selling of a patent uh, device is an infringer. What difference does that make? Because making, using, and selling equals infringement. Because those are the acts, Your Honor. If Congress's intent had been to say we only want to induce acts, it would seem to me the clearest way they could say that is to say making, using, or selling. If they wanted to create a standard which was inducing the actual infringement of a patent as opposed to the acts which constitute the infringement, then they use the word infringement. Well, I, I don't see that. And not only that, I don't understand why the Sienta requirement for inducing should be higher than the Sienta requirement for a direct infringement. Isn't the, the standard rule for aiding and abetting that the aider and abetter, if, if B is, yeah. is an aiding and abetting provision, as one of the congressional reports said, that the, the Sienta for aiding and abetting is the Sienta of the underlying offense. So if the underlying offense is a strict liability offense, then the inducement should be a strict liability as well. That's not necessarily clear, Your Honor. When you look at 18 U.S.C. Section 2, there's very little case law dealing with strict liability offense and inducements of those. We have been able to identify one Sixth Circuit case from 1989 which deals with the issue, uh, and in that case it holds that there's actually a purpose to require — a purpose to cause the underlying crime or violation, not necessarily strict liability. Not strict liability. Is, is well, your, I'm sorry. Are, no, please. Uh, is your position when you're talking, whether you're talking about willful blindness or purpose or whatever, is that with respect to a particular patent or is it with respect to infringement of a patent? I, I, I don't think it's true with deep fryers, but in, in some areas, you almost always know you're going to hit something. Uh, given the nature of the industry, you're going to infringe something. Is that enough? If there's an area, for example, semiconductors, where some amike has stated that there's seven, there's 420,000 patents dealing with semiconductors, and you know that, and you know that if you do virtually anything, and especially if you copy, you're going to hit a semiconductor patent owned by somebody, I think that in that rare situation, knowledge that you're infringing someone's intellectual property rights should probably be enough uh, of, a, of, an, of, an, uh, of an directed intent. If you, th that would be the basis for inferring a purpose. But here we well, have. That's, I mean, I understand you're in the deep fryer industry, but that standard would bring the semiconductor industry to a halt. No, no, Your Honor. If you copied a semiconductor and you knew that there were 420,000 patents that were unexpired out there, that would make it, uh, if you didn't do your, your, your diligence, um, well, I think the, prob the problem is even if you do do your diligence, given the way patents are these days, they're 420,000, you're never going to know with any degree of comfort that you're not going to infringe something. That's very, very true, Your Honor. And even in the, uh, in the deep fryer industry, it's going to be different because there's very few, I mean, compared to semiconductors. I mean, we're not going to adopt a special rule for the deep fryer Agreed. Industry. I mean, there's Agreed. At the rule? Completely agree. But we might decide that it's more important to consider what's going to happen to the semiconductor industry in articulating our standard than what's going to happen to the deep fryer industry. That's exactly correct, Your Honor. That's exactly correct. And, and on balance, um, I think there's one point that I should make sooner rather than later, and that it's the standard that I'm — the standard that we're proposing is not unique to us. It's the, it's the standard that Groxer developed. And with respect to willful blindness, we believe that the standard uh, — the, 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 the balance was already struck, and it was struck in favor of eliminating a willful blindness standard. I'd like to read — Mr. Dunnigan, suppose I disagree with you on that, and suppose I think that actual knowledge of a patent or willful blindness as to whether a patent exists is the right standard. Could a reasonable jury have found that in this case? We don't think that a reasonable jury could have found willful blindness because — First of all, there wasn't the high probability that a patent would be found. Second, we don't think that there was active — A reasonable you know, jury couldn't have looked at the facts that Justice Ginsburg suggested. Uh, you know, you don't tell the lawyer that you, in fact, have copied the product and say that's wolf — a reasonable jury, that's willful blindness. I don't think so, Your Honor, because what we had done in that situation was, first, we have done more than the law required. We went out to get a patent. We gave the lawyer our actual patent drawings and tell him to But if you work. really wanted to know, wouldn't you have gone into Montgomery Ward and bought 
one of the priors and turned it around to see if it had a patent number on it? Your Honor, we have so many products that you couldn't practically expect the company to do that, I don't think. Well, listen, the, the, the reason you got the opinion from the lawyer was, was not to make sure that there were no patents. It was to show that opinion to Montgomery Ward. But you're, you're as a practical matter, you needed an opinion from a lawyer, because otherwise Montgomery Ward was not going to sell this stuff. Your Honor, I take issue with you for the following reason. I don't think there was any intention on the part of our client to, in, to infringe a patent at all, because if it knew about the patent, it could have designed around it if it knew what it was doing. There's no benefit to our client of getting Montgomery Ward or Sunbeam or Fingerhut in trouble for patenting infringement. We really want to know what patents are out but there. Isn't it, isn't it true that Sunbeam was the party that asked for the patent search? I don't believe that's in the record, Your Honor. I believe the record shows that Sunbeam was given a copy of the patent search, but Mr. Sham testified, and I believe this is about at page 50 of the Joint Appendix, that the purpose of the search was to find out whether or not there were, was an infringement of any patent through this deep fryer. And there's nothing in the record that says who, we, who asked uh, Pendalpha to get a letter? If this isn't willful blindness, I don't know what willful blindness is. Now, maybe uh, you can explain what more would have been required to permit a reasonable jury to find willful blindness. Okay. I think you'd need two things, Your Honor. The first that you would need is evidence that they were going to bump into a patent if they, if they proceeded. Is there the high probability of finding a patent? Now, if you, if you just consciously avoid knowledge in the absence of a high probability, that's not willful blindness. That's I not mean, even look, culpable. Your client, I don't know whether you're using your time most effectively by arguing this point, but your, your client thought that making a deep fryer that wouldn't burn people's hands if they touched it would be profitable because there wasn't a lot of competition in that market. This was a useful product and apparently one that was different from other deep fryers. Isn't that in itself, doesn't that in itself suggest, gee, there might be a patent no, on, I, on this? I, well, is there a, is One there, company is making this, and it seems to be better than what the other companies are making. Maybe it might be patented. Your, Your Honor, the record is that there were six or so deep fryers, which were the cool-touch deep fryers, which they, were, which they used as references. Seb was not the only cool-touch deep fryer that was available. Now, to turn back to the issue of whether or not Grokster act, actually found that willful before, before you pass that question, then why, out of the six or seven, did they pick the Seb prior to reverse engineer. They reverse and en- they looked at all of them, Your Honor. They reverse engineered all of them. If you look at and then they copied the, the design of the SEB. Actually, Your Honor, they improved it. There's functional features that went beyond and were better than what were in the SEB product. For example, they used better metal to make the cast iron uh, pan. They put the. But there uh, was a finding that it was an infringement that the. Uh, Pentalpha Fryer infringed the SEB. The jury did find that, Your Honor. Mr. Dunnigan, could I take you to the standard? Because in Arrow 2, we said that the appropriate standard in subsection C was actual knowledge. Why shouldn't we just say it's the same, whether it's B or C? These are just two means of, of doing a contributory infringement. And the knowledge, willful blindness standard, once we've said it applies to C, it applies to B as well. The reason that you shouldn't take the standard from C is because C deals with non-staples and B deals with staples. Someone can be liable under B if they, if they sell a staple article of commerce. When they can't be liable under C, even if they meet the higher stand, even if they meet the state of mind element under C, which is knowing the patent and knowing that the combination would be an infringement. Therefore, to make sure that B does not swallow C, it's very important that B have a higher state of now, mind. B and C have different standards as to um, uh, not the knowledge of the patent, but, but what the person is, the acts that constitute infringement. But that's a different thing from whether they should have different standards as to the knowledge of the patent. Well, when you say there's different standards, the sale of, an, of a staple article 
under B in itself, with a proper state of mind, can be an inducement. The sale of a non-staple article with certain additional conditions can be a violation of C. The action element for B and C is, is essentially the same for the sale of components, and it wouldn't make any sense to raise it for B because all you would be doing in that situation is, is encompassing sellers that were helping their customers do business more effectively, and you wouldn't be getting any more bad guys. The purpose of B is let's get the morally culpable actors. Now, I, I had thought that you wanted us to take the knowing standard in C and apply it to B. No, Your Honor. I, correct me if I'm wrong. No, I would think you have to go with the Grokster standard, Your Honor. And the reason for that is, one, in Grokster, you found what the state of mind standard was for inducing infringement under B, and you moved that into the copyright law. Then, uh, under Mr. Dunnigan, in Grokster, there was no question as to whether they knew that the, that the, that the things were copyrighted. That was conceded in that case, Your Honor, yes. Okay. So why is Grokster relevant here? They conceded the very thing that we're arguing over. Well, it's, 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 it's relevant because it deals with the standard, what is, this, what is the state of mind element for inducing copyright infringement? And you say it's purpose, purpose, purposeful, purposeful and culpable. culpable. Yes. And why is that, how is that different from knowing? I, I, my impression was the same as Justice Kennedy's. I thought you wanted the knowing standard. No, well, the, the way I understand knowing, Your Honor, is that in Sony, for example, there was no liability, even though so Sony knew that some people were going to use the VCR to uh, infringe copyrighted works. That was collateral damage, even though they knew it. It wasn't the basis for liability. In Grokster, the basis for liability was, even though the defendant knew that there were going to be some infringements, it couldn't be liable for contributory, contributory copyright infringement, the equivalent of 271C, because there were substantial non-infringing uses for the Grokster software. Grokster was, was allowed to be found liable because the defendants had a, a culpable ob objective, they had a culpable purpose, or at least a jury could so find, that they wanted to encourage infringements. I'm, I'm a little confused. If you knew that there was a patent under B and you still gave the friar, patented friar that you know is a patented friar, to Montgomery Ward or some being to sell, you're not liable under B? Because why? What act of yours was not purposeful? Um, Your Honor, I believe the first sentence of your question was if you knew that there was a patent. Is that a hypothetical? Yes. Okay. If we knew that there was a patent and we knew the claims of the patent and we read them and we — Well, we'll go as to uh, — let's, let's just stop. Uh, Justice Kennedy and I believe the Chief have asked you, isn't your entire argument that we should move the knowing knowledge of C into B? And you said no. No, because so it, should be, it should be higher. It should be the Grokster standard of purposeful, culpable conduct. In, and the reason for that — Well, then explain to me what's okay. not purposeful or knowing. What's not purposeful, culpable conduct? If you know there's a patent, or we can decide whether knowledge includes willful blindness or not, that's not my issue. If you know there's a patent and you give the product to someone else to sell, how can you not be culpable or — because, Your Honor, if it, it, you could or you could not be, depending on what your purpose is with respect to infringement. If you had a legal opinion which told you that the sale of that product would not infringe the patent, then you wouldn't have a purpose. So you're introducing a mistake of law defense to knowledge. You're saying, I really didn't know that it was unlawful. I knew there was a patent, but I really thought that it wasn't a legal pa patent, so I was going to violate what I know wasn't legal. Is that well, what you're saying? Not exactly, Your Honor, because if you're reaching the conclusion that the product is not within the scope of the claims of the patent, I don't think that's law. That's fact. The reason it's not law is that the, it couldn't be repealed. It's, it, it, you can't pass a law abrogating a patent. Why well, you're talking you get off the hook for making a mistake of law? 
A mistake of law, generally, you don't get off the hook. What we have here is a mistake of fact concerning the scope of the claim of the patents. Now, granted, under Mark — would never have any patents enforced under your theory. Yes, we would, Your Honor. Let's take the situation that there was a prior adjudication that the direct infringer was directly infringing. Let's take the situation where there's going to be advertising which references the patent as there was in Grokster and says, go infringe it. Let's take the situation where there's internal documents at the company suggesting that there is a purpose to infringe, as there was in Grokster. But if you're — I'm sorry, I don't want to interfere with you. No, Your Honor, please. Uh, well, wait. If the Court has no further questions, I would like to reserve my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Cruz? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Whatever test that this Court adopts for inducing infringement, the central objective of that test will be to separate culpable bad actors from innocent corporate behavior actors. And by any measure, Pentalpha in this case was a culpable bad actor. In fact, we've got really extraordinary testimony in this case. So would you have any objection to an actual knowledge willful blindness standard? That would be all right with you? I think that is one of multiple standards this Court could adopt. If this Court were to adopt actual knowledge, I don't think actual knowledge is in the statute, but if this Court were to adopt actual knowledge and, con and conclude also that willful blindness is a long-recognized means of demonstrating actual knowledge, that would support the judgment. I take it that we would do that on the basis of Arrow, too. We would just say that's the standard for C, and that should be the standard for B. Uh, respectfully, Justice Kagan, I, I don't think that would be an interpretation that is faithful to, to, to the text of 271. That there is an enormous difference between 271C and 271B. 271C includes the word knowing. 271B does not include the word knowing. And your question assumes that Well, 271C includes the word knowing. You, you have to know that an item has no non-infringing uses. That's a different kind of knowledge than the knowledge that we're talking about here. Uh, respectfully, in Arrow 2, what the Court did, and it was, an, as you know, a splintered majority in Arrow 2 where the dissenters flipped back and forth, but with the particular paragraph that, that, that addressed the holding on what had to be demonstrated, the Court concluded that that word knowing effectively modified both the knowledge that the non-staple article had no non-infringing use and, and that it would cause the infringement. That's how the Court read knowing as modifying everything that follows it in 271. And that it would cause the infringement, but not necessarily that there was a patent, not necessarily the legal effect as opposed to the act. Well, that, that's, that's necessarily part of what the Court held in, in 271C. And I, I would agree this would be a very, very different case if 271B had the word knowing. I, I, mean, I mean, Arrow, in many ways, was a much easier case if the question is, do you have to demonstrate that something's knowing, and the statute says it must be knowing. Why, why do you say, uh, I, I'm not certain that willful blindness would support the conclusion below. The, the standard, the district court or the trial court said, really, negligence, as I read it, should have known. Uh, the circuit said deliberate disregard of a known risk. Well, how much of a risk? I mean, in the business world, there's always a risk. And we're talking about a complicated world, probably quite a lot of risk. And so I think that standard would, would create a great deal of uncertainty. Willful blindness has a tradition. So are you okay with willful blindness? And we say we're afraid they didn't do it, uh, i.e., we're afraid that we don't know what they really meant here, and so send it back and do it again. I'm sure you wouldn't be overjoyed, but do you think that would be a reasonable result? I, I think if the conclusion were send it back and do it again, I don't think that would be a reasonable result. Um, well, what are you supposed to say? Known risk. Sure, he says he looked at five. And he said, anybody could figure this thing out. All you do is put some little gizmos between the two sides. You know, and uh, you have an inside and an outside, and you just suspend the inside with some little bars of some kind. I don't know what, chewing gum or something. And, and he says anybody could figure that out. It couldn't possibly be patented. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, that's their view. Parody. But uh, uh, how much of a risk? See, they'll say, ah, little risk, big risk. So you see why I think we should send it back? Now you tell me why that isn't right. That's what they argue to the jury. 
And that did I'm not saying they're right in that. I bet they'd lose. I mean, but, but, but my problem is, do I accept the words deliberate disregard of a known risk, or do I say the more traditional accompaniment to knowledge is willful blindness, which for all its obscurity at least has a history? The jury heard those arguments. The jury rejected those arguments. The argument that was presented to the jury, although the precise words willful blindness were, were, were not used, the argument that was presented to the jury was a willful blindness argument. Well, what was that, what was, how was the jury instructed? What the jury was instructed was, was several things, and the, and the jury instructions at uh, RA 26 and 27. The jury instruction that was used, by the way, was the model jury instruction that has been used since 1998, has been unchanged, and has included largely this language since 1998 over and over and over again. That's the jury instruction we're dealing with. Was the jury and, and what? I'm still waiting to hear what it was. It, it's a complicated instruction, so part of Well, I thought there was some question about that it was so low that it, uh, in effect, amounted to a negligence standard. I, that is, that, that is part of the argument Pent Alpha presents. I don't believe that is accurate. Number one, the jury was instructed that, that plaintiff had to prove by preponderance of evidence that defendants actively and knowingly aided in abetting the direct infringement. That's part of the instruction, that they actively and knowingly. Where are you reading from, Mr. Cruz? Uh, RA 26 and 27. And at the end of the, it's the end of the red brief. It's in the red. red this I don't think that's the part they're complaining but about. It, it's, it's, in, it's in the red brief, the respondent's brief. That's respondent's appendix, page 26. Toward the bottom, it says, if you find that some, and I have a problem that I don't know that they preserve this objection, but let's talk about what the standard ought to be. At the bottom, it says, if you find that someone has directly infringed the patent, and that the defendants knew or should have known that its actions would induce direct infringement. So this means to me that in order to be liable for an inducement, you can be liable if you knew or should have known. Now, if we can just discuss this for a moment, it seems to me that this is the important point in the case, because if you say should have known, then you have a standard that's less than intentional for inducers. And that means that every supplier, every business person, that takes a product from a, from a manufacturer has the duty to inquire and to find out if there's a patent. Just and and, and it, it's it's a standard that's less than intentional, and that is a very substantial change or a very substantial burden to impose on those who are selling and distributing products. Justice Kennedy, I, I don't believe that's correct. Number one, we're, we're certainly not advocating a general burden on, on all producers to do a patent search. That, that, that is not remotely the position. Well, but if, if you say should have known, that is the, that is the, that is the, the what, what necessary I would, consequence of, of the holding. What I would suggest the import of that language is, is to allow constructive knowledge, is to allow essentially willful blindness, which was the entire way it was argued to the jury. Um, well, it, as you say, willful blindness was never used uh, it really until, until, this, until this court, and this court has never, in a full opinion for the court, adopted it even in the criminal context. Justice so can Kennedy, we talk about uh, knowing as opposed to should have known? The argument that was presented to the jury in closing what, it, what, what uh, trial counsel said, and this is a trial transcript, page 929 through 31, uh, which is not in one of the appendixes in front of you. I apologize for that. But what, what the transcript says is that Mr. Sham, the CEO, never told his patent lawyer, look, what we're doing is copying this SEB product. What he did, I suggest to you, is he set Mr. Levy up to fail. He set him up to fail by not telling him he had copied the product. That was the theory that was argued as to why they should have known, because this was, in effect, a sham, that not telling the lawyer about the product, it wasn't an accident. But you're presenting to us the proposition, I take it, correct me if I'm wrong, that we should write an opinion that saying that no or should have known is the standard for an inducer. And I question whether that is a wise interpretation and a necessary interpretation of B, especially as we're informed uh, through C as to what B might mean. Justice Kennedy, we are not proposing that, and I would say two things. Number one, 
There is an entire instruction on inducement, and there is also the language I read before that is part of the jury charge on inducement, and I don't think the jury can be presumed to have only listened to one snippet of the instruction without the entire instruction. Mr. Cruz, does All right. If, you're, if we're arguing about whether or not you can protect your judgment based upon all the, 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 that's in the record, I think you may have a strong point. But I'm interested in what the standard ought to be. I'd like you to know what a properly instructed jury should be told with reference to knowledge or something less than knowledge? I would suggest, with respect to the language knew or should have known, that if there is not an actual knowledge requirement, which in my judgment is nowhere in the statute, then you have to have something like should have known. Because I, I don't know what you alternatively instruct. If it's not actual knowledge, then there is a situation where someone is allowed to have constructive what was the So you're saying that B should have a lesser standard of culpability than C? Absolutely. I don't think the statute makes any sense unless B is understood to have a lesser standard. Otherwise, the inclusion of the word knowing is given no effect. Well, the difference, they say, between B and C is that C applies to a person who makes some really special thing. You know, it looks like a, a Japanese uh, 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 kabuki theater costume, and it's actually made out of metal, and it really has a very bizarre thing, and its only use, a good use, is to do this infringing thing. But B can apply to somebody who makes plastic sheets. But, but B, can apply to, B, B can apply to anybody who makes anything. Is Justice that right? Breyer, under that argument, the statute would be interpreted identically if the word knowing were added to B. And well, given that they added it to C and not no, to No, no, no. Well, the, the argument is that the words actively induce are meant to be something greater than knowing, not something less than knowing, because otherwise you're going to hold Aluminum Company of America, if that still exists, liable when it makes these aluminum sheets, uh, because somebody uses an aluminum sheet, apparently, with etc. You see the problem. And that's quite different when you make this weird kabuki-looking thing that only has one use. And, and they, that's why it should, be a t- it should be harder to hold that person to contributory infringement, not easier. Now, that's their argument. What do you say? Justice Breyer, that, that may be a reasonable policy argument. Right. However, that is also a reasonable policy argument for modifying A, because right now the aluminum company is liable under strict liability for direct infringement today. Yeah, but I'd like to get really an answer from you on Justice Kennedy's question, because at the moment I'm not worried about your case. You, of course, are. I understand that. But, but the, the, I am worried about Alcoa or, or little backyard uh, maker of clay pots or, I mean, you know, m- millions and millions of people make things that are used in millions and millions of ways. And I'm worried about what kind of burden we're supposed to impose on them. I see three candidates. One is you're liable if you should have known. Two is you're liable if you consciously disregarded a, a, a risk, a known risk. That's sort of like a, uh, you know, the model penal code, et cetera, sort of. And third is willful blindness. Is there a fourth? And if there isn't, what do you choose among those three? No, not what you choose. What should we choose? We have suggested three possible standards to be the rule in this case. Mm-hmm. The first, the Court could choose to adopt the standard that was adopted in Grokster. And we have argued at considerable length that under the standard this Court adopted in Grokster, the plaintiffs, the defendants rather, would be liable and it would uphold the judgment below. That's the broadest standard the Court could adopt. A more narrow standard the Court could adopt is that at a minimum, willful blindness of the patented issue suffices to allow inducement liability. That's a more narrow standard. It would cover a much narrower universe of conduct. It would exclude much of the conduct both Justice Breyer and Justice Kennedy are suggesting. That's a second way this this judgment could be affirmed and a more narrow rule. The most narrow rule we have suggested this Court could adopt is in the limited circumstances when a defendant deliberately copies another commercial product. At a minimum, that defendant has an obligation to ascertain if that specific product has protected U.S. intellectual property, that it's a very minor obligation that is triggered only when you take a commercial product on the marketplace, reverse engineer it, and copy it, because it's a situation that is highly likely to be indicative of bad conduct, to be 
risking a very substantial infringement of someone else's IP. And in terms of a low-cost avoider, one of the things at footnote 20 of our brief. Now, wait, before you, before you go further, what, what, what if you do that? Okay. And you get an opinion from a lawyer, as they did here, said you're, you're not violating any copyright or any, any patent. If they had said three words differently, this would be a very, very different case. If they had simply, in talking to their lawyer, said, we copied SEB. Okay. You, you have to tell the, the, the searcher that you copied. Yes. If you specifically test. copy a product, you have to look to see if that particular product is protected by IP. So is that, is that another standard? Maybe that's an example of what it is to be willfully blind. If, in fact, you go out and copy something that could well be uh, patented, and you don't tell your lawyer, go look up this one, that's willfully blind. Well, and that, and that that's why you say they're the same. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, it, it, the Court could certainly craft the rule, at least narrowly tailored to the facts here, which is copying. And, and, and look, copying is not a unique problem. It is a serious problem internationally, with U.S. intellectual pr- property being stolen, copied, and marketed. And if Pent Alpha were to prevail, if this Court were to conclude Unless you have actual knowledge, you know to 100 percent certainty this violates Patent 312, you're immune from liability. That decision of this Court would serve as a road map. You're not immune from liability for direct infringement. You're immune from liability, under the hypothetical, for actively inducing. And that's, and that's where there's a very substantial policy difference. But, Justice Kennedy, the reason in this case why we brought a cause of action for both direct infringement and active inducing is because the argument of Penn Alpha was their conduct was all overseas, and so they weren't covered by 271A. The entire reason for the inducing strategy is they may well prevail in another case on saying, we stole your property overseas, so you can't get us for direct infringement. And in that instance, inducing is the only way to get the actual mastermind. I mean, that was one of the phrases Giles Rich used in defense of 271. So are you saying that the uh, standard uh, of knowledge should be the same for, inf- for direct infringement as for active inducement? Um, I think there is a reasonable statutory argument to be made that it is the same, namely that it's strict liability. We are not pressing that as the only way to prevail, but I think there is certainly a reasonable statutory I'm a little confused about the relationship between knowledge and the Grotzker standard. You think knowledge is a more favorable standard for petitioner than Grotzker. You're willing to accept Grotzker but not willing to accept actual knowledge. I do, and I'll tell you why. Well, before you tell me why, do you understand — it's unfair to ask you, I guess, but I understood petitioner to take the opposite position, that Grotzker — was a more favorable standard for him than actual knowledge. I agree with you. That's what Petitioner said here. My understanding of Petitioner's position was the same as yours, Mr. Chief Justice and Justice Kennedy's, that they are effectively requiring actual knowledge. That, 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 that's what they're urging. Mr. Cruz, why aren't you both wrong? That Grobster didn't deal with the question that we're dealing with, which was knowledge of a patent or knowledge of copyright, that Grokster dealt with whether there was specific intent or whether there needed to be specific intent to encourage infringing acts. That's what Grokster was about, an entirely separate question. I, l- let me answer both, both your question, Justice Kagan, and, and the Chief Justice's question together. Grokster used language about purposeful, culpable conduct, but it went further. It specified how you ascertain whether that standard is met. And it said, as shown by other affirmative acts to encourage inducement. Now, in Grokster, part of the argument Grokster made was, we don't know what copyrights are going to be violated. We don't know what's going to be. They made the same argument Pentalpha's making. We have no idea of any specific copyright that will ever be infringed. They argued, we don't have actual knowledge of the specific copyrights. And this Court said, that doesn't matter. Well, one of the one of the briefs, uh, one of the, uh, the amicus briefs in this case, points out that uh, uh, that uh, argument is is a lot less plausible in copyright than it is in in patents. Uh, it's uh, it's very easy to find out whether you're infringing a copyright. It's very difficult to find out whether you're infringing a patent, especially in the in the modern age of of warehoused patents. Uh, I'm not sure that we that we want to uh, uh, use the same test for copyrights that we use for for patents. 
that policy differential, there may well be differences between patent law and copyright law that are implicated in other cases. Here what occurred is an entire commercial product was copied. It's much more akin to copyright infringement, where the entire product was copied and they just changed the cosmetic feature. Well, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm just expressing reservations about your suggestion that we simply take Crockster wholesale and apply it to this situation. Let me be, let me be clear, let me Justice be Scalia. I am not advocating this Court do so. What I am saying is if this Court were to apply the Grokster test, we believe we prevail under it. And in fact, any comparison of Grokster to Pentalpha, Pentalpha is clearly the more culpable actor. In Grokster, the individuals violating the copyrights were the ones who made the choice to directly and deliberately violate the copyrights and Grokster simply provided the tool to do so. Here, the only bad actor was Pentalpha. Sunbeam, Montgomery Ward, they had no idea of the infringement. Pentalpha was the mastermind behind the entire patent violation, and it, in fact, because of its actions procuring a right-to-use opinion by keeping the relevant information from its patent lawyer, it lured, it induced Sunbeam and Montgomery Ward and Fingerhut into committing the bad acts. Would you say, even though you dis- I, I think you disagree with this in this case, but would you say that there is a reasonable argument in our precedent for saying that the standard of knowledge under B should be greater than reckless disregard? I, I do not believe there is in the precedent. For one thing, Reckless disregard is the standard now. Willfulness and recklessness are the standard right now for enhanced damages and attorney's fees. And if it were the case that every violation of 271B required recklessness or willfulness, it would also mean that every violation would qualify for enhanced damages or attorney's fees. I don't think that's consistent with the statutory standard. That's not the language Congress adopted. All right. Would you say that there uh, is substantial authority for the proposition that it should, the uh, state of mind should be greater than should have known? I I do not believe there is. Particularly how should have known was used in this case. A, the jury was, the way the jury was instructed, I would suggest it was effectively a constructive knowledge instruction. We're dealing with a Federal Circuit decision. We're reviewing that decision. The Federal Circuit had a formula. It said, standard is deliberate disregard of a known risk. One thing we must surely do is to say whether that standard is right or wrong. So the Federal Circuit, whatever the jury found, Federal Circuit said the law is that you are liable under 271B if you are deliberately if you deliberately disregard a known risk. Is that standard the right one? I agree the Federal Circuit had that language. I would not suggest that standard was the wrong standard. But what I would say what the Federal Circuit, in fact, did is it applied willful blindness. If you look at the cases it cited, if you look at how it, in fact, interpreted it, although it used the deliberate indifference language, which I will concede was somewhat confusing in in its reasoning, if you look at it, it framed it as whether Pentalpha had constructive knowledge of the patent. And it then cited willful blindness cases from other circuits that focused it on actively disregarding a known risk and deliberate avoidance and consciously avoided knowledge. All of that is willful blindness. Knowledge. Mr. Cruz, well, we are certainly interested in what the standard should be. But in terms of the disposition of this case. Maybe you can help me with this. The, uh, obje- the instruction to which there was an objection on 124A to, it, well, wherever it is in the joint appendix, was uh, the no, knew or should have known, right? Correct. And the objection that I see was that the words or should have known that their actions, this is 135A of the joint appendix, should have been stricken. So. Am I right that the only issue that is preserved is the question whether actual knowledge was required? Because that was the only that that was what that was the error, the alleged error that was identified 
by Mr. Dunnigan. I, I agree with so that. So if he's wrong on that, then the judgment should be affirmed. I, I agree with that entirely. And indeed, we have suggested the central issue, the question before this Court is, is there a requirement of actual knowledge of the specific patent? And in my judgment, there is no reasonable argument from the statutory language that in order to be liable under 271B, you must specifically know to 100 percent certainty this is violating patent number 312. That's the issue they objected. That's the issue that has been brought before this Court, is — Because we still have to define knowledge. If we accept that actual knowledge can have a different definition, just not the should-have-known definition, well, we have to define what, what knowledge we're — what kind of knowledge we're talking about? If it is a case that you must specifically know of the specific patent, it will ensure that — I agree with you. We can say that. But how does it help the development of law for us to simply say you — it's not so much knowledge that you have to know the specific patent by number? I'm going to suggest it's a binary choice. It is either actual specific knowledge of the patent, or it is some form of should-have-known that allows constructive knowledge. That's where I am at the moment. The should-have-known or the willful blindness, the disregard, the problem, and it seems like a real problem there, is know what exactly? Well, know there's a risk. Well, at that point, half the country in the business world is very upset because there's always a risk. And the other problem is, you say, if you move away from that and say, no, no, I mean, a real risk, I mean, a huge risk, I mean, a risk that, in fact, you almost knew that this was it. Now, I can do it with my tone of voice, but I need the words to put in there that are going to calm people's fears that they're not suddenly going to be held liable because there's some fairly small risk of this. So what words would you use? In this case, you had unusual — I know this case I'm not worried about. I'm worried about what I said. Well, let me suggest what words you could use to resolve this case, because — I don't want to just resolve the case. The reason we took the case is because there seem a bunch of standards floating around. Now, I know our interests differ in this matter, but I would appreciate any help you can give me about what I'm thinking now is on words that will quantify the risk that you have to have known about, a risk, so that it doesn't look like some small thing that's always there, but looks like some giant thing that's pretty close to actual — The language that was used in Santos was that willful blindness is when a party aware of a high probability of a fact deliberately avoids learning. All right. What about that? That language would encompass this case. Yeah, it would. And it would not bring in innocent — Okay. That isn't my problem. You say a high probability that. You have to be — you have to consciously — that's the model penal code. That's the, you know, torts restatement. You have to consciously disregard a high probability that this item was patented and also meet the other requirements that are part of active inducement. Is that — that's what your thought is? I think that would be an acceptable test this Court could — A high probability of what? A high probability that you will infringe this — a patent or any patent? With respect to what was happening here, when you copy a commercial product, there is a high probability that product is protected by a patent. And when you engage in what the district court characterized — I'm not interested in what happened here. I mean, we're still talking about a general test. What I would suggest — and that's one of the reasons we proffered the narrow test that is keyed on copying, because copying of completed commercial products is the most egregious. If the Court is concerned about unintended consequences, that narrow rule is the most narrow rule. If I could briefly suggest — Forget the narrow rule. What do you think the rule should be to articulate what Justice Breyer was asking? With respect, my client doesn't care, as long as the result at the end of the opinion is affirmed. I know your client doesn't care, but still we have to write. So what about — to follow it up a little bit, it is knowledge. You're familiar with these areas, so you're helpful. And it's a knowledge or a known — or consciously disregarding a known risk where the risk consists of a high probability that that item that you are inducing to be produced 
will infringe a patent. I agree that would suffice. With respect to why this Court should not remand, if I may very briefly make three points. Number one, this case has been going on for 12 years. To remand for a new trial would drag it on to more endless litigation for no purpose. The District Court observed below this case was not a close case. It took the jury 109 minutes to resolve against Pentalpha on every single ground that was presented to it. Number two, the jury charge that was sent to the jury was more than sufficient under any of these standards. But number three, the alternative argument we made, there was a finding of direct infringement. That finding of direct infringement is also supported by the damage award, and that's an alternative ground to remand it. Now, in the reply brief, Pentalpha says, focuses on the same differential that the, that the Federal Circuit did between the language of the jury charge and the language of the verdict form. But the only evidence the jury had of the number of units sold by anybody was the stipulation. In their reply brief, they say, well, it could, there could have been some sold in Canada. That was lawyer argument. The only evidence which everyone agreed was the stipulation. And if that's true, that supports the damage award. Thank you, Mr. Cruz. Uh, Mr. Dunnigan, you have four minutes remaining. Um, five points in rebuttal, I believe, Your Honor. The first is, what should the standard be with respect to willful blindness? And I do want to call the Court's attention to one sentence in Grokster appearing at page 941 of the opinion. And it provides, this is worth reading, I believe, if liability for inducing infringement is ultimately found, it will not be on the basis of presuming or imputing liability, excuse me, fault, but from inferring a patently illegal objective from statements and actions showing what that objective was. Now, in the context of an amicus brief from the Solicitor General in that case suggesting a willful blindness standard, it seems to me that that language is a rejection of imputing a willful blindness standard. So you want, you want actual knowledge of the patent. That's your test? The, the test that we're looking for is the Grokster test. Is there purposeful, culpable conduct? Do you want actual knowledge of the patent? Yes, Your Honor. For the and that's the issue you preserved with your objection. Not precisely. We preserved other issues beyond that. We preserved both the jury charge by objecting at 135A of the Joint Appendix, and we objected to the judgment as a matter of law motion uh, by, by making it and saying specifically there's no evidence here that there was actual knowledge of the patent before April 9th of 1998. Now, and after that date, you admit you because you continued to sell um, the product to the retailers. So yes, after, Your Honor. after the after Sunbeam is sued, then you are actively inducing infringement. No, Your Honor. At that point, we have actual knowledge of the patent, and the analysis has to go to what was our purpose for the bulk of that period of time. We had a legal opinion from a very competent New York City lawyer stating that we did not infringe. And the jury, the, I guess the second point I was trying to make is the jury never evaluated any standard higher than new I or that, I thought that opinion was after the first finding of infringement, and then you redesigned the product, and, the, and that, the letter that you got dealt with the redesigned product. I believe your timing is correct, Your Honor. The so, but after, just originally, something is soon for infringement. Sunbeam notifies Pentalpha. At that point, Pentalpha is continuing to make sales. Is it infringing? Is it in actively inducing infringement? That's a question of fact, Your Honor. The jury resolved it against us. But the point I was trying to make is that for some period of time after that, we had a legal opinion saying we didn't infringe, and we believe that legal opinion from the New York City attorney would prevent or should prevent, as a matter of fact, a finding of, will, a finding of purposeful culpable conduct. Now, the second standard I but wanted to address you, was — But you've admitted there was pur purposeful culpable conduct when you didn't — when you had the original design and that was — and you were sued uh, for actively inducing infringement of that design, by that design. No, no Your Honor. We, we would never concede 
that we were purposefully. But you think a jury could have found that from the facts? Yes. We're not seeking judgment as a matter of law for any claims that arose after April 9th of 1998 when we had actual knowledge of the patent. Only before we had actual knowledge of the patent are we seeking judgment as a matter of law. Now, going to the issue of whether willful blindness could be found by the failure of someone to tell the patent attorney that there was a copy. I'm sorry. Why are you doing that? I I thought that you came in arguing that the act you have to have actual knowledge of the patent. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, by number and, that was the conversation we had earlier, and that the patent covered the scope of your invention. Yes, Your Honor. That's our primary argument. But if the Court were to adopt willful blindness as being enough, then I would question whether or not simply not telling the patent attorney what references were, were used or even which ones were copied would be enough. Because in that situation, the company has taken an effort to find out what the truth is, and it simply failed to meet the gold standard in, in meeting that obligation. Thank you, counsel. The Thank case you. is submitted.